Chapter Three, Part One of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Three, The Period of Growth, Part One, The New Nation. The American language thus began to be recognizably differentiated from English in both vocabulary and pronunciation by the opening of the nineteenth century, but as yet its growth was hampered by two factors, the first being the lack of a national literature of any pretensions, and the second being an internal political disharmony which greatly conditioned and enfeebled the national consciousness. During the actual revolution, common aims and common dangers forced the Americans to show a united front. But once they had achieved political independence, they developed conflicting interests. And out of these conflicting interests came suspicions and hatreds which came near wrecking the new confederation more than once. Politically their worst weakness, perhaps, was an inability to detach themselves wholly from the struggle for domination still going on in Europe. The surviving loyalists of the revolutionary era, estimated by some authorities to have constituted fully a third of the total population in 1776, were ardently in favor of England, and such patriots as Jefferson were as ardently in favor of France. This engrossment in the quarrels of foreign nations was what Washington warned against in his farewell address. It was at the bottom of such bitter animosities as that between Jefferson and Hamilton. It inspired and perhaps excused the pessimism of such men as Burr. Its net effect was to make it difficult for the people of the new nation to think of themselves politically as Americans. Their state of mind, vacillating, uncertain, alternately timorous and pugnacious, has been well described by Henry Cabot Lodge in his essay on colonialism in America. Soon after the Treaty of Paris was signed, someone referred to the late struggle, in Franklin's hearing, as the War for Independence. Say rather the war of the revolution, said Franklin. The war for independence is yet to be fought. That struggle, adds Lossing, occurred, and that independence was won by the Americans in the War of 1812. In the interval, the new republic had passed through a period of Sturm und Drang, whose gigantic perils and passions we have begun to forget, a period in which disaster ever menaced, and the foes within were no less bold and pertinacious than the foes without. Jefferson, perhaps, carried his fear of monocrats to the point of monomania, but under it there was undoubtedly a body of sound fact. The poor debtor class, including probably a majority of the veterans of the Revolution, had been fired by the facile doctrines of the French Revolution to demands which threatened the country with bankruptcy and anarchy, and the class of property owners, in reaction, went far to the other extreme. On all sides, indeed, there flourished a strong British party, and particularly in New England, where the so-called codfish aristocracy, by no means extinct even today, exhibited an undisguised anglomania, and looked forward confidently to a reapprochement with the mother country. Footnote. The thing went, indeed, far beyond mere hope. In 1812, a conspiracy was unearthed to separate New England from the Republic and make it an English colony. The chief conspirator was one John Henry, who acted under the instructions of Sir John Craig, Governor-General of Canada. End footnote. This Anglomania showed itself not only in ceaseless political agitation, but also in an elaborate imitation of English manners. 
We have already seen on Noah Webster's authority how it even extended to the pronunciation of the language. The first sign of the dawn of a new national order came with the election of Thomas Jefferson to the presidency in 1800. The issue in the campaign was a highly complex one, but under it lay a plain conflict between democratic independence and the old doctrine of dependence and authority. And with the alien and sedition laws about his neck so vividly reminiscent of the issues of the revolution itself, Adams went down to defeat. Jefferson was violently anti-British and pro-French. He saw all the schemes of his political opponents indeed as English plots. He was the man who introduced the bugaboo into American politics. His first acts after his inauguration were to abolish all ceremonial at the court of the Republic and to abandon spoken discourses to Congress for written messages. That ceremonial which grew up under Washington was an imitation, he believed, of the formality of the abhorrent court of St. James. As for the speeches to Congress, they were palpably modeled upon the speeches from the throne of the English kings. Both reforms met with wide approval. The exactions of the English, particularly on the high seas, were beginning to break up the British party. But confidence in the solidarity and security of the new nation was still anything but universal. The surviving doubts indeed were strong enough to delay the ratification of the Twelfth Amendment to the Constitution, providing for more direct elections of President and Vice President, until the end of 1804. And even then, three of the five New England states rejected it and have never ratified it. In fact, to this day. Footnote. Maine was not separated from Massachusetts until 1820. End footnote. Democracy was still experimental, doubtful, full of gunpowder. Insofar as it had actually come into being, it had come as a boon conferred from above. Jefferson, its protagonist, was the hero of the populace. But he was not of the populace himself, nor did he ever quite trust it. It was reserved for Andrew Jackson, a man genuinely of the people, to lead and visualize the rise of the lower orders. Jackson, in his way, was the archetype of the new American, ignorant, pushy, impatient of restraint and precedent, an iconoclast, a philistine, an anglophobe in every fiber. He came from the extreme backwoods and his youth was passed amid surroundings but little removed from downright savagery. Thousands of other young Americans like him were growing up at the same time, youngsters filled with a vast impatience of all precedent and authority, revilers of all that had come down from an elder day, incorrigible libertarians. They swarmed across the mountains and down the great rivers, wrestling with the naked wilderness and setting up a casual, impromptu sort of civilization where the Indians still menaced. Schools were few and rudimentary. There was not the remotest approach to a cultivated society. Any effort to mimic the amenities of the East or of the mother country in manner or even in speech met with instant derision. It was in these surroundings and at this time that the thoroughgoing American of tradition was born. Blatant, illogical, elate, greeting the embarrassed gods uproariously and matching with destiny for beers. Jackson was unmistakably of that company in his every instinct and idea, and it was his fate to give a new and unshakable confidence to its aspiration at the Battle of New Orleans. Thereafter all doubts began to die out. The new republic was turning out a success, and with success came a vast increase in the national egoism. 
The hordes of pioneers rolled down the western valleys and on to the Great Plains. Footnote. Indiana and Illinois were erected into territories during Jefferson's first term, and Michigan during his second term. Kentucky was admitted to the Union in 1792, Tennessee in 1796, Ohio in 1803. Lewis and Clark set out for the Pacific in 1804. The Louisiana Purchase was ratified in 1803, and Louisiana became a state in 1812. End footnote. America began to stand for something quite new in the world, in government, in law, in public and private morals, in customs and habits of mind, in the minutiae of social intercourse. And simultaneously the voice of America began to take on its characteristic twang, and the speech of America began to differentiate itself boldly and unmistakably from the speech of England. The average Philadelphian or Bostonian of 1790 had not the slightest difficulty in making himself understood by a visiting Englishman. But the average Ohio boatman of 1810, or plainsman of 1815, was already speaking a dialect that the Englishman would have shrunk from as barbarous and unintelligible. And before long it began to leave its mark upon, and to get direction and support, from a distinctively national literature. That literature, however, was very slow in coming to a dignified, confident, and autonomous estate. Down to Jefferson's day it was almost wholly polemical, and hence lacking in the finer values. He himself, an insatiable propagandist and controversialist, was one of its chief ornaments. The novelists and the historians, the essayists and the poets, whose names come to mind when American literature is mentioned, says a recent literary historian, have all flourished since 1800. Pickering, so late as 1816, said that, in this country, we can hardly be said to have any authors by profession. It was a true saying, though the new day was about to dawn. Bryant had already written Thanatopsis and was destined to publish it the year following. Difficulties of communication hampered the circulation of the few native books that were written, it was easier for a man in the South to get books from London than to get them from Boston or New York, and the lack of a copyright treaty with England flooded the country with cheap English editions. It is much to be regretted, wrote Dr. David Ramsey of Charleston, South Carolina, to Noah Webster in 1806, that there is so little intercourse in a literary way between the states. As soon as a book of general utility comes out in any state, it should be for sale in all of them. Ramsey asked for little. The most he could imagine was a sale of 2,000 copies for an American work in America. But even that was far beyond the possibilities of the time. An external influence of great potency helped to keep the national literature scant and timorous during those early and perilous days. It was the extraordinary animosity of the English critics, then at the zenith of their pontifical authority, to all books of American origin or flavor. This animosity, culminating in Sidney Smith's famous sneer, footnote, in the four quarters of the globe, who reads an American book, or goes to an American play, or looks at an American picture or statue, Edinburgh Review, January 1820, end footnote, was but part of a larger hostility to all things American, from political theories to table manners. The American, after the War of 1812, became the pet abomination of the English, and the chief butt of the incomparable English talent for moral indignation. There was scarcely an issue of the Quarterly Review, the Edinburgh, the Foreign Quarterly, the British Review, 
or Blackwood's for a generation following 1814 in which he was not stupendously assaulted. Gifford, Sidney Smith, and the poet Southey became specialists in this business. It took on the character of a holy war. Even such mild men as Wordsworth were recruited for it. It was argued that the Americans were rogues and swindlers, that they lived in filth and squalor, that they were boors in social intercourse, that they were poltroons and savages in war, that they were depraved and criminal, that they were wholly devoid of the remotest notion of decency or honor. The Foreign Quarterly, summing up in January 1884, pronounced them horn-handed and pig-headed, hard, persevering, unscrupulous, carnivorous with a genius for lying. Various Americans went to the defense of their countrymen, among them Irving, Cooper, Timothy Dwight, J.K. Paulding, John Neal, Edward Everett, and Robert Walsh. Paulding in John Bull in America, or The New Munchausen, published in 1825, attempted satire. Even an Englishman, James Sterling, warned his fellow Britons that if they continued their intolerant abuse, they would turn into bitterness the last drops of goodwill toward England that exist in the United States. But the avalanche of denunciation kept up, and even down to a few years ago, it was very uncommon for an Englishman to write of American politics or manners or literature without betraying his dislike. Not indeed until the Prussian began monopolizing the whole British talent for horror and invective did the Yankee escape the lash. This gigantic pummeling in the long run was destined to encourage an independent spirit in the national literature, if only by a process of mingled resentment and despair. But for some time its chief effect was to make American writers of a more delicate aspiration extremely self-conscious and diffident. The educated classes, even against their will, were influenced by the torrent of abuse. They could not help finding in it an occasional reasonableness, an accidental true hit. The result, despite the efforts of Channing, Knapp, and other such valiant defenders of the native author, was uncertainty and skepticism in native criticism. The first step of an American entering upon a literary career, says Lodge, writing of the first quarter of the century, was to pretend to be an Englishman in order that he might win the approval not of Englishmen, but of his own countrymen. Cooper, in his first novel Precaution, chose an English scene, imitated English models, and obviously hoped to placate the critics thereby. Irving, too, in his earliest work, showed a considerable discretion, and his History of New York, as everyone knows, was first published anonymously. But this puerile spirit did not last long. The English onslaughts were altogether too vicious to be received lying down. Their very fury demanded that they be met with a united and courageous front. Cooper, in his second novel The Spy, boldly chose an American setting and American characters. And though the influence of his wife, who came of a loyalist family, caused him to avoid any direct attack upon the English, he attacked them indirectly and with great effect by opposing an immediate and honorable success to their derisions. The spy ran through three editions in four months. It was followed by his long line of thoroughly American novels. In 1834 he formally apologized to his countrymen for his earlier truancy and precaution. Irving, too, soon adopted a bolder tone, and despite his English predilections, he refused an offer of a hundred guineas for an article for the Quarterly Review, made by Gifford in 1828, on the ground that the review had been so persistently hostile to our country 
that I cannot draw a pen in its service. The same year saw the publication of the first edition of Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language, and a year later followed Samuel L. Knapp's Lectures on American Literature, the first history of the national letters ever attempted. Knapp, in his preface, thought it necessary to prove, first of all, that an American literature actually existed, and Webster, in his introduction, was properly apologetic, but there was no real need for timorousness in either case, for the American attitude toward the attack of the English was now definitely changing from uneasiness to defiance. The English critics, in fact, had overdone the thing, and though their clatter was to keep up for many years more, they no longer spread terror or had much influence. Of a sudden, as if in answer to them, doubts turned to confidence and then into the wildest sort of optimism, not only in politics and business, but also in what passed for the arts. Knapp boldly defied the English to produce a tuneful sister surpassing Mrs. Sigourney. More, he argued that the New World, if only by reason of its superior scenic grandeur, would eventually hatch a poetry surpassing even that of Greece and Rome. What are the Tibers and Scamanders, he demanded, measured by the Missouri and the Amazon? Or what the loveliness of Elysius or Avon by the Connecticut or the Potomac? In brief, the national feeling long delayed at birth finally leaped into being in amazing vigor. One can get an idea of the strength of that feeling, says R. O. Williams, by glancing at almost any book taken at random from the American publications of the period. Belief in the grand future of the United States is the keynote of everything said and done. All things American are to be grand, our territory, population, products, wealth, science, art, but especially our political institutions and literature. The unbounded confidence in the material development of the country, which now characterizes the extreme northwest of the United States, prevailed as strongly throughout the eastern part of the Union during the first thirty years of the century and over and above a belief in and concern for materialistic progress, there were enthusiastic anticipations of achievements in all the moral and intellectual fields of national greatness. Nor was that vast optimism wholly without warrant. An American literature was actually coming into being, and with a wall of hatred and contempt shutting in England, the new American writers were beginning to turn to the continent for inspiration and encouragement. Irving had already drunk at Spanish Springs, Emerson and Bayard Taylor were to receive powerful impulses from Germany, following Tickner, Bancroft, and Everett before them. Bryant was destined to go back to the classics. Moreover, Cooper and John P. Kennedy had shown the way to native sources of literary material, and Longfellow was making ready to follow them. Novels in imitation of English models were no longer heard of. The ground was preparing for Uncle Tom's Cabin. Finally, Webster himself, as Williams demonstrated, worked better than he knew. His American dictionary was not only thoroughly American, it was superior to any of the current dictionaries of the English. So much so that for a good many years it remained a sort of mine for British lexicography to exploit. Thus all hesitations disappeared, and there arose a national consciousness so soaring and so blatant that it began to dismiss all British usage and opinion as puerile and idiotic. William L. Marcy, when Secretary of State under Pierce, 1853-1857, issued a circular to all American diplomatic and consular officers, loftily bidding them employ only the American language in communicating with him. 
the legislature of indiana in an act approved february fifteenth eighteen thirty eight establishing the state university at bloomington footnote it is curious to note that the center of population of the united states according to the last census is now in southern indiana in the western part of bloomington city monroe county can it be that this early declaration of literary independence laid the foundation for indiana's recent preeminence in letters compare the language we use by alfred z reed new york sun march thirteenth nineteen eighteen in footnote provided that it should instruct the youth of the new commonwealth it had been admitted to the union in eighteen sixteen in the american learned and foreign languages and literature such grandiose pronunciamentos well indicate and explain the temper of the era footnote support also came from abroad czar nicholas i of russia smarting under his defeat in the crimea issued an order that his own state papers should be prepared in russian and american not english End footnote. it was a time of expansion in braggadocio the new republic would not only produce a civilization and a literature of its own it would show the way for all other civilizations and literatures. Rufus Wilmot Griswold, the enemy of Poe, rose from his decorous Baptist pew to protest that so much patriotism amounted to insularity and absurdity. But there seems to have been no one to second the motion. It took indeed the vast shock of the Civil War to unhorse the optimists. While the Jackson influence survived, it was the almost unanimous national conviction that he who dallies is a dastard, and he who doubts is damned. End of chapter 3, part 1. Recording by Philip Gould.